Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, in a World Cup-free zone, because the Netherlands aren't in it, is um, Willem Bouter, City's Special Economic Advisor and, of course, a former policymaker at the Bank of England, uh, back on Threadneedle Street. Willem, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. What do you think of the latest trade headlines? Well, the WTO story is, of course, worrying, even though I interpret it as more noise than, than substance. Remember, there is precedent for uh, the US under President Trump withdrawing from international agreements. Right? When we had the Paris Accord uh, that was abandoned, admittedly it hadn't been legislated yet. But my view is that this is uh, part of aggressive rhetoric to get something from the WTO, uh, to get it to say you know, declare currency manipulation to be an actionable offence within the WCO, which he then can use to hit other countries over the head with. What do you think the WTO needs to do? How does it need to change to accommodate some of the concerns the United States has? It's hard to see how uh, the WTO um, could uh, change uh, other than dissolving itself you know, to meet the objectives of of, of Mr. Trump. Uh, in the in the US, I think it would be nice. Uh, this is not the uh, Trump position, but uh, to have uh, services brought firmly under its uh, uh, under its cover, so that uh, the US, which is a big exporter of services and a growing exporter of services, uh, can uh, benefit from the international trading arrangement the way goods exporters do. Within trade. And within where we are now, there's the European view as well. Trade has been U.S.-China, China-U.S., U.S.-China. How should Europe respond to all this? Well, Europe is really in the in, in the crosshairs. Um, it's more open uh, than than the U.S. It's uh, in terms of uh, export and import shares of GDP. It's uh, basically as open as China, and um, it uh, is vulnerable to everything that the US is imposing on on China and the rest of the world and has imposed so far and what and the way China is retaliating if only through the diversion of exports that previously went to the US to uh, uh to, to Europe which would be disruptive there mm-hmm. so um i think they have to uh keep beating the multilateral drum and uh, um you know, take measured steps to respond to provocations from the US rather than engage in a pointless tit-for-tat. Willem, what is the multilateral drum and how productive is beating it? Well, it has given us 70 years almost of uh, uh, unparalleled prosperity. So um, uh, the notion that uh, trade barriers are there to be removed and that the victims uh, of trade liberalization or those who don't share in the gains must be compensated through domestic fiscal mechanisms and through domestic educational and training programs, that message has to be 
uh, made very clear. I think overwhelmingly most of our listeners would agree with you. I also think they'd agree with you that over the last 70 years, liberalising trade regimes is something that has really helped in terms of prosperity, not just in the developed world, but elsewhere as well. I think where people have an issue, Willem, is that one country came along and didn't play by the rules and didn't liberalise quickly enough. And that's China. The fly in the ointment of the last seven decades is the Chinese economy. Uh, well... There are many sinners in the international trade field, right? China is just the most visible one because it's by far the largest. But uh, uh, most emerging markets are wildly protectionist, mm. uh, right? Uh, Which makes sense as a country develops to have barriers to entry to well, ensure that they can protect industries and do well in the early stages. I just don't think that we can compare China yeah. to, say, Indonesia. No, but I'm talking not just... Uh, China, I'm talking, uh, uh, I'm, I'm talking Brazil as well, which is at least as protectionist as China, probably more so. Um, and uh, uh, so, yes, um, uh, there is an infant industry protection argument, right. which I think actually doesn't hold water. The way to protect industry is to use domestic fiscal. Uh, and regulatory measures, not international trade barriers. If you're just joining us worldwide and coast to coast across America. John Farrow and Tom Keenan with us, Professor Bowder. We have the gentleman from England in Perugia, uh, and also Professor Bowder of Belgium and the Netherlands. And you mentioned rules and trade. Professor, I'd like to go to Section 32, Item 5, Paragraphs A to C. And down at the bottom, it says, Fair play conduct of the teams based on yellow and red cards received <laughs> in all group matches. Would you two please explain oh, this is the most, what would I, never occur yeah. in American sport? Japan folks, from those of you that missed this, sandbagged a game. There's no other way to put it. So basically, when you're level on points, when you're level on goal difference, when you're level on head-to-head, -head, the way they distinguish between who goes to the next round and who stays um, down and goes home is fair play. Willem, I, you know, the number it's, of it's red a, and yellow cards. The number cards. of red and yellow cards. Yes. I mean, it's a, it's a bit ridiculous, but I don't get how else they can really get around Other it. Other than flipping a coin, I actually think this is good. Excuse me, can't they have like a shootout or actually like What, they've got to soccer? arrange to go somewhere else and, and have a shootout? I don't know. It, it, to me, how does FIFA let this stuff happen? You're offended by this, I'd aren't like you? The, I like the fair play uh, Do you, Willem? Yes, yes. <laughs> Tom King clearly does you not. You like fair play where, like, <laughs> they move on because they got less yellow cards? Yes. If all those things are equal, yes. But but in the next round, they there's no, like, ties or anything? And no, no, like, no. It play. goes to extra time, it then it goes to penalties. There. It's that the knockout stage Was this a fluke because they both played at the same time? Like, it was just, it was, it was a coincidence. It was a yeah, coincidence. It really was a coincidence. It was very much a coincidence. The interesting thing about England and that game is yeah. that they lose to Belgium. So they had a choice to make. You either play a hard game against Colombia and then have an easy half, an easy route to the final after that. Right. Or you play an easy game against Japan and then have a much harder route agree. to the final But Belgium after that. didn't do that. I think so it is Belgium always... Played Belgium, football, Belgium played football, your England sandbag. It is yeah. always bad policy, I think, to uh, not do your utmost to win I agree any with given that. game. So I agree I think with that. It's now been shown, okay. proven, that... England is beatable. And, and, and the Telegraph, I believe it was a Telegraph, John Farrow, today, highlights that psychologically this will change England because the players know they sleptwalk through Bowder's Belgium. Right. 
It's gonna be it's gonna be tough to beat Colombia. Yeah. I don't think we should sort of um you know underestimate the Colombians. It's gonna be tough to They're beat. They're very Columbia. serious. I think this could well be exit for for England. Um, you know, after Brexit, uh, England exit. There we go. And then the is, that, is that the villain bouncer call? Did bouncer just call Inglexit in the World Cup? Okay, can we? I'm loving that. <laughs> villain bouncer city, special economic advisor. Villain's going to stick with that us. That would never happen in American sports. I, Tom, ever. I agree with you. Villain agrees with it. I actually agree with you. FIFA's got to change the rule. That's all there is. The WTO's got to change. FIFA's got to change. We're doing it all this morning. Do you know aren't that we? the governor of Kazakhstan is doing better in his bracket than I am? Really? Your yeah. bracket, it does I not look good. I pick Kazakhstan to win. Personal income, uh, yeah, not a whole lot. I, I'm trying to make something up here and I can't do it. Year over year PCE deflator up a tick. That's about all I got. This is going to be a joy. For the next half hour, we're going to try to go beneath the usual blather on Vienna and oil. And we can do that with a former vice chairman of Bank of America, Mr. Petrie, Thomas Petrie, who not only has a pedigree out of West Point, but has darkened the door of the Colorado School of Mines with an honorary doctorate years ago. Tell us about the kids coming out of the School of Mines and what they're going into in hydrocarbons. Colorado School of Mines was just ranked the best college in Colorado. I say this after too many 3-2 beers at Tulagi's up in Boulder at Colorado and their great aerospace engineering program. But the, the bottom line is the, one of the schools you're affiliated with is the nirvana of hydrocarbon engineering. What industry are they going into? Well, they're going into a very different industry than... Uh, many of the uh, many of their predecessors. Uh, this industry is, is was reinvented with the shale revolution, and uh, and it coincides with the kind of technology we have today, uh, with information and handling and processing of information. So uh, they're coming out with a, a toolkit yeah. that is beyond the toolkits known. Uh, even well, 10 years ago. Even 10 years ago. Okay, and so within this point. within this toolkit is what you just observed and John Farrow and I just observed in Vienna. Vienna looks like something out of Daniel Jurgen's Chapter 3 of the Prize. I mean, it looks like it's out of 1870 or 1930. I'll let you pick. How out of touch is OPEC and the cartel when you see the rocket scientists coming out of School of Mines? Well, you know, they 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 are struggling. And, and they've been struggling to, one, to understand what the shale revolution was about, and two, get and say, well, if, if they've got it, we must have it uh, because it's source rock. And, uh, and how do we get at it? And, and they're struggling mainly because the business model that they have with state oil companies um, doesn't particularly incentivize the minds yeah. of, their, of their people. Now, technologically— they can they can play catch up on this and 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 to their credit, uh, Saudi Aramco as an example, it prides itself on its technological capabilities. Yeah, and and they 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 internalized that when they took over Aramco back in the late seventies. Uh, but but this one is a challenging one, and so far they haven't had a lot of reward. Tom, it's been the story of the last <laughs> decade. This technological improvement that's just meant 
a place like the United States is now swimming in oil. But I find it amazing how quickly the conversation could turn in the commodity market and in the crude market. We go from oversupply, too much, too much, too much, too much. And now when I speak to the guys like you, it's like there ain't going to be enough. Well, I'm not sure I'd say that, but I'd say that we've got to develop more supply using these new tools because we are in a position where at the moment we've got global demand growth that came along and surprised against the backdrop of Venezuela in a financial meltdown or really a a systemic meltdown. A humanitarian crisis as well. When you're rationing food to your people, 30, you know, the interesting numbers, they have almost the same population as the inhabitants of Saudi Arabia. They have almost the same stated reserves, roundly, think, 275 to 300 billion um, barrels. Um, and and the same populations, 30 million plus or minus a million. And yet, one case, systemic impoverishment, another case- It is amazing. Uh, just the opposite. Do you yeah. think we are going to have significant supply issues, though, Tom, that, that will ultimately mean this crude price has got to go higher? Well, the price is the ultimate allocator when that happens. And yeah. yes, uh, now, but, but the other part here, something else is happening. And both China- and Russia are very motivated. Uh, sanctions on Russia have prompted a much closer relationship with China than they would otherwise have. China has plenty of excess money to put into the Russian oil industry. So that the development of Russian supplies is going to come along too. And Russia will have the technology as well. They, 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 that's a good question. Uh, it remains to be seen how mm. well. The big problem in Russia, and I talked about it in my book, Following Oil, top-down top-down management of these things without a bottom-up bubbling and validation of what you're doing is right. gives you ultimate uh, failure. we got lots to talk about here. Tom Petrie with us, with Petrie uh, Partners on hydrocarbons and where we are. And really, John, one of the surprises here, June 29, June 30, is Brent 78.68, up 83 cents. And, and I mean, WTI you know, quietly back through 70 without much discussion, yeah. 73.50. $11 spread. Yeah. Yeah, Tom Petrie putting out, for anyone that didn't hear yeah. that, the $11 yeah. spread becoming yeah. five um, over the last few weeks. Quite a dramatic we're, spread. We're at 60, um, I don't know, 60, 66-ish. We're up $10 over the first half of the year. Joining us now is She Prepares for Face the Nation Sunday morning. Of course, you can hear it on Bloomberg Radio Sunday afternoon. Is Margaret Brennan. Margaret, I go out on the Twitter feed of CBS News, and there is Nora O'Donnell trying to get us through another shooting in Annapolis. Nora on the streets of Annapolis uh, this morning. And I, I like what your tweet said with great grace. Authorities are still processing the crime scene. How will you process Annapolis on Face the Nation Sunday morning? We, we will um, unfortunately carry on what has become a kind of morbid tradition on the show of trying to honor the names of those who've been killed in this latest mass shooting. This time I know it, it hits close to home for so many journalists and so many newsrooms across the country um, because uh, these people were attacked at their place of work, and it would appear the motive is because this uh, individual was uh, upset at an article published mm-hmm. about him, about his uh, guilty plea to harassment charges. Um, 
And so we will acknowledge them. We will talk about it, but we will also talk about the the news of what looks to be a long, hot summer here in Washington when it comes to this battle over the next Supreme Court justice. You know, you've got to look at that. How soon, within the reporting of CBS, how soon until the president picks? The answer is, you know, with the midterms, he's in a rush, isn't he? Uh, He is in a rush for a variety of reasons, as you just indicated. This is something that could really get people to uh, go to the mattresses, go to their corners, and maybe go to the voting booth uh, in November because um, there is so much significance around a Supreme Court justice and some of the culture war issues, uh, particularly abortion, in terms of uh, the possibility of relitigating uh, what Senator Collins has said, uh, settled law in terms of Roe v. Wade. But what we're going to be talking about, it looks like in terms of the timeline from the president's pick, he said he's already got this list, he's already whittled it down, it's already public, but we may get a name before he departs for Europe, which uh, is around the 10th or 11th. So this is in the coming days, and the White House is already courting some of those uh, centrist Democrats who have a D next to their name but come from states that have voted for Trump. Uh, I'm talking about people Mm -hmm. like Joe Manchin of West Virginia, and they're also courting uh, some key Republican votes, uh, like Senator Collins, who I mentioned, said for her this is settled law. Margaret, uh, I'm sure you've heard the reports that, uh, from Axios at least, that the president may be interested in withdrawing the United States from the World Trade Organization. Uh, what's the perspective going to be for trade? And of course, uh, you know, we've gone through a week in which the president was in Wisconsin uh, because of the new Foxconn facility. Right. And you had that uh, decision from Treasury saying the president's going to ask Congress to try to rule on investment restrictions coming out of China rather than going with the harsher measures that the president had been weighing. Um, and, and that was a win for the Treasury secretary, who today is, I guess, tamping down some of these reports of WTO withdrawal. But we know that he is in a very different camp ideologically than some of the trade advisors like Peter Navarro on this or the USTR representative. Lighthizer. But really, Pam, it's interesting because if you put this in the theme, something I've been looking at just across this week, you had the president standing at one of those rallies this week saying the European Union was put together to sort of bilk the U.S., take advantage of the U.S. economically. You've got the concern about the WTO, and now we're looking at mm-hmm. what makes a lot of people concerned what's going to happen at this next NATO meeting when the president goes there to meet with our treaty allies. And does he have the kind of knockdown drag out conversation he did at the G7 where uh, it, he looks like he is being um, at odds and uh, dividing our alliance there before he goes into a meeting with an adversary, Vladimir Putin? There's a lot of concern among our European allies here uh, that our closest friends are being alienated and our adversaries are being drawn close. Margaret Brennan, thank you so much. You can see Face the Nation. See it on CBS Sunday morning. Hear it on Bloomberg Radio, 2 p.m. We do that in New York, Washington, D.C. And now Bloomberg 106.1 FM, Boston, Newbury Report. Face the Nation, 2 p.m. Yes. On Bloomberg as Radio. well as 1330, Metro West and the South Shore. Very Just given the whole thing, you know. It's like the circle. The like circle. The there four, you go. The you, you know more about it than I do. Yeah.
Normally, we speak with Brian Kelly, the points guy who revolutionized air travel in America, but he's unfortunately going to Mauritius on British Air today for $122. So instead, speaking to us, the famous and handsome Julian Mark Keel with the points guy. Good morning. How are you? Okay, I got a couple fundamental questions. Tim and I have observed that every seat is taken. Yeah. Aren't by definition they want to raise prices until there's a few empty seats? Absolutely. And it is harder today than it was several years ago to redeem points and miles for uh, airline flights simply because there's more people traveling and the airlines want to redeem, uh, want to sell those seats. However, the airlines do realize that their programs do are profitable because consumers see them as a value. So if they completely eliminate all availability, yeah. they're going to be killing their cash cow. Who is paying for all this? Like if JP Morgan or Citigroup or whatever, the banks, they do all these charge cards and you and Brian figured this out. I get it. But when do they break even on all this mileage baloney we're all doing? Well, the banks, uh, when they uh, give out these points and miles, they are paying the airlines and hotels for each point or mile that they are uh, giving out to a consumer. And obviously, there's also uh, quite a bit of breakage there because not every point and mile ends up getting consumed. It ends up getting redeemed. Uh, But the credit card market domestically in the U.S. is so strong and so robust that uh, banks like Chase and issuers like American Express can easily make back those costs with swipe fees and annual fees and all the other charges you pay with a credit card. Pim, do you know I saw a photo of Brian Kelly in first class British Air eating caviar? (laughs) I don't even even like if they gave me caviar in coach. I I mean, don't worry. It's it's all right. It's all right. You you don't have to worry. Do they have caviar in premium economy? I have no idea. I have no idea. I I have no idea. I'm glad, but I'm glad that you brought up British Airways because the parent company of British Airways, IAG, uh, has announced a new low cost travel option, which is called Level. It's flying out of Vienna, and I believe you can do Vienna Gatwick for something like $30. And my question to you, Julian, is when are we going to see more of these low-priced carriers, the low-fare carriers, uh, really kind of start to take business away from some of the legacy carriers? I'm thinking here of WOW. I'm thinking of Norwegian. Uh, They're not going away. They seem to be getting even stronger. Uh, in general, they are, though Norwegian has had some financial difficulties, so it's it's not all good I don't mean for the companies. I mean for the traveler. Oh, for the travelers, it's a, it's a boom. It, this is there's never been a better time to fly transatlantic uh, for uh, low fares, especially in economy. It, the the low fare carriers, the low cost carriers, have absolutely made a dent in the legacy carriers' uh, 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 traffic over the uh, ocean, and we are seeing more and more sales where you'll get uh, fares to London, fares to Paris for three hundred, four hundred dollars a round trip, which would be unheard of just five years ago and what kind of equipment should we expect to be uh, on those routes is it the uh, 737 maxes is it the uh, all single oh, aisle what you. kind of stuff are we gonna well you know you got to figure out a way to buy tom those three no we'll get <laughs> tom three seats that we'll get to that in a second <laughs> 
Yeah, we are seeing certainly a move to aircraft like the 737 MAX to make that transatlantic flight. Just a few years ago, that couldn't have been accomplished. Now that plane can make the distance. The 737, for people who may not know what that is or be familiar with it, that's the plane that basically Southwest flies almost exclusively all around the U.S. It's a single uh, aisle jet, three seats on each side. It's a workhorse of the industry. Hasn't usually been used on overseas flights like that, but it's definitely going yeah. to become very common. Julian Marquille with us with the Points Guy. We continue. Julian, uh, Marriott is merging hybrid with, with SBG and all that, so that's a hotel card. Are airline miles cards better cards to have than hotel cards, or is it like a new world with a combined Marriott Wards rewards, I don't know, universe that it is or <laughs> monopoly that it is? You know, it depends on what – your travel focus is what your travel goals are where you tend to how you tend to travel and where you tend to travel but what we recommend at the points guy is actually neither airline co-branded cards nor hotel co-branded cards although there is a place for them but we look towards flexible point currencies and by that we mean Chase Ultimate Rewards credit cards, American Express Membership Rewards, City Thank You Rewards. And the reason for that is the points you earn with those credit cards can then be transferred at your, at your discretion to a lot of these same airline and hotel programs. Um, each one of those programs has at least a dozen transfer partners, so you're kind of getting the best of both worlds when you do it that way. Julian, I want to turn uh, to a topic that has uh, been really popular online, and this has to do with service animals flying the skies. Uh, the airlines are cracking down on this, aren't they? Yes, there's there's definitely been some very obvious abuse of the policy. First of all, there's a difference between service animals, certified service animals, who might be helping a disabled person, and then emotional support animals. That's where the abuses have happened, where people who simply don't want to have their animal travel in cargo or stay at home are bringing them into the cabin and for no fee and not having to pay any fee, and oftentimes much bigger animals than are uh, appropriate for a large cabin. So that's where the airlines have really started to I think Delta, down. for example, they just uh, prohibited, what, pit bull dogs from uh, yeah. traveling. And there was a petition to the Department of Transportation saying they want to li limit emotional support and, and service animals to just dogs. You're not going to be able to bring your peacock uh, on the plane anymore. Or your duck. That's right. Uh, th th that is where this all stems from, is the DOT rules on what airlines should allow. But I think that uh, that's coming full circle at this yeah. point. And in the next year, we're going to see more and more yeah. airlines uh, stopping these questionable uh, yeah. emotional where, where would you Where would you send Tom uh, on a nice, uh, you know, like three-day break right now? Tom, how, how does Zurich sound? How about Zurich? Would that be, I, we can get you on Should a nice... Uh, business class flight to Zurich for I think Brian can get you there for about eighteen dollars if that works. Eighteen dollars? How can you do that? <laughs> only Brian Kelly can do that? Do you know that my bow tie costs thirty dollars more in Zurich than it does in New York? Well, see, there you go. For almost uh, two bow ties, you can go twice. I mean, Tyler Berlay was on the other day from Monocle, and he's loving Zurich. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. Julian, thank you so much. Julian Markill with uh, the points guy to get us going on the travel season. I mean, Pim, I, to the point, I went to China, you went to Europe, every seat's taken. Remember when you'd go like, oh, it was 75% capacity? 
it's gone. It's it's like every these huge airplanes. Yeah, I was on an A three eighty. Every seat was taken. It was I, big. I just, but I got to say, what I really liked was the A three eighty. Maybe this is just because I don't know about it. Yeah. But they've got the three cameras on the exterior of the aircraft. They've got one at the nose. Right. They've got one on the tail, underneath yeah. the fuselage, yeah. and as a result, that you can yeah. see, you know, what's going I'm on. While you're flying. I'm booking the Christmas vacation this weekend. Are you? Yeah, Mrs. King goes, we should go to Venice and the Canals. Wow. So we're going to San Antonio, and they got that river, you know, the, the middle of the river. I thought you, you were going to go to Terror. Vegas and go to the, no. those canals. Oh, we could do the Bellagio thing. Yeah, that's yeah, a good idea. I like looks that. like Venice. San Antonio or Las Vegas, it's a tough call. Yeah. You know, canals. That's so we're bad. Do. Up 220 points. We're finishing strong in the first half of this year. 220 points, 24,000. We'll get you on a new uh, <clears throat> 787 Dreamliner. I would say, yeah, well, yeah good luck with that. I, I really, seriously, I still look to fly 747s. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.